The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Nancy. So good morning, everyone. The title of the talk today is Impermanence and Our Relation to Time. So I want to begin with a chant in Pali that maybe some of you know. It's a beautiful short chant that with just a few words, captures what impermanence is for us in the Dharma. And as you listen, perhaps you want to um, keep in mind how this chant has been chanted for centuries and countless generations that have been born and died, have been chanting it. And as we hear it or chant it, we're connected to all these people that go all the way back to the Buddha that have practiced and try to face this reality of impermanence. So if you happen to know the chant, feel free to chant with me. Anichawata Sankara Upadawaya Damino Upachituani Rujanti Tesam Upasano Suko. A possible translation would be All conditioned things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness which is peace. So with this talk, we want to explore from one particular perspective, impermanence. Impermanence is such a big, big topic. It's one of the three universal characteristics. And it's so big that we have to come back over and over again and from different perspectives. This makes the our journey to get closer to this uh, concept much more interesting and then also understand that it's not just a concept, it's something that we have to embody, that we really have to intuitively know. The first time that um, I came in touch with impermanence in a long retreat, a three-month retreat, the way that I would describe it, the sense that I got was desolation. And that's why we have to come back many, many times because it takes a lot of practice to be able to be with impermanence and not fall into desolation. So that was kind of like the beginning to just touch this enormity But as we go along, and that has also shown in my practice, as we go along and touch again into impermanence in a in a deep way, not just not just in a rational way, then we begin to be in touch with that luminosity and immensity that comes with the understanding of impermanence. 
So talking about impermanence through our relation to time for me is like breaking this immensity into manageable bits. And to me, as I was thinking about it, this topic is uh, particularly rich because it is as much a spiritual question as an existential one and also a practical one. Right? I mean, it's so important. How is it that we relate to our time from day to day? In a group of teachings that maybe some of you have heard called the Abhidhamma, I found it interesting that time is described as a mental phenomenon whose purpose is to separate and order events. So this is interesting. This is separate and order events. It's very useful for us to be able to choreograph our lives in community. But this definition also points by saying it's a mental phenomenon that we're dealing with something abstract. So in no way we're going to define what time is. We're just going to probe it a little bit here, a little bit there. Because just thinking of time in terms of seconds, minutes, hours, I see it as our feeble attempt to bring order and control on something that we have no control at all. Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian poet, writes, Time is the substance of which I am made of. Time is a river that sweeps me away, but I am the river. So we can say that we are time, we are change. Time, we can also say, is the span allotted to us from the time of our birth to the time of our death. Time is also understood in terms of space. That is, we visualize time as a space that can be filled with activities. We plan how many things we're going to fit in in a particular amount of or span of time. We look at time also as a commodity and, and something we own. You know, we speak of, I have time. But the Dharma teaches us otherwise. The Dharma teaches us we only have the present moment. We really don't know if we have one year, two years, whatever time in our lives. So one way that I want to look at how is it that we relate to time is how is it that we have been conditioned? It's really quite an interesting question to ask ourselves, how was I conditioned by my family, my culture? And as I asked myself the question, uh, the memory came back. When I was a kid growing up in Mexico City, My mother was a ballet teacher, and every afternoon, before she would go off to teach her ballet classes, she would be running down the hall right in front of our bedrooms, and she would call out one last direction. Use your time well, because you will have to give an account to God. I heard that every afternoon. (laughs) So what does that say about me? I've had to realize that when we have that relation to time, um, 
What she really meant is don't spend your afternoon playing, daydreaming, which is what I love to do. And so some of us grow up and have to relearn how to play. And by play, I mean just, you know, this, this frolicking just for the joy of doing whatever it is. Not every moment has to be filled with striving, with producing, or self-improvement. Do we know how to rest just for the sake of resting? Do we give ourselves permission to just rest? In retreats, I have found that it is very common to find yogis who have a hard time giving themselves permission to just be in the retreat and not to be producing something. It's as if we've been taught you have the right to exist only if you're producing. Does that sound familiar? So this is something many of us have internalized in Western culture, but not all cultures have this attitude. For example, in indigenous cultures, in Latin America, they have a very different relation to time. And a friend of mine was telling me of this anecdote of um, he, he went to an indigenous market and he saw this woman who was selling beautiful hand-woven baskets. And so he asked her, would you, would you sell me all your baskets? And much to his surprise, she said, no, I won't sell them all because what would I do the rest of the day? So For us, it's kind of a little bit like, well, but for her, she enjoyed this this sense of smelling, seeing, talking to people, being in her community, being the whole day in the market. That was an experience for her. And to me, that conveys a certain kind of contentment that some of us don't have because we're so busy rushing from one activity to the other. The writer Oliver Berkman describes that many of us are productivity geeks, and I certainly was one with endless to-do lists. So most of us have the belief consciously or unconsciously that if we only had enough discipline and organizational skills, that we would be able to do all we want to do. Therefore, it is not surprising that there are thousands of uh, self-help books to help you manage your time better. And all these books promise us that if we manage our time well, we will once and for all get done all we want and that we will have some control over our lives. But I think you're here because in some ways you've noticed that this keeps escaping us and that that's not the way. There is one book that has been published recently that offers a new perspective. This book was written by Oliver Berkman, and the title is 
4,000 weeks time management for mortals. So this is not a Dharma book. This is a book for a general public. Some of you might maybe already know about the book. But what I really like is that from the get-go, he lets you know we have only, four th- in average, 4,000 weeks to live. And we are mortals. For the general public, that's quite an affront to remind people that we have limits and that we're mortals. But I think this is precisely why this book is so important for us. Berkman writes, It was always already the case that you would never experience a life of perfect accomplishment or security and that your 4,000 weeks have always been running out. So this is the kind of honesty that we are accustomed to in the Dharma, but not necessarily the general public. The German philosopher Heidegger describes succinctly with three words, he says, being towards death, sein zum Tode. And for me, this expression with three words is saying, if you live your life aware of your mortality, you will live a life that is much more conscious, much more wholehearted, and you would let go of all kinds of petty things that we get trapped over and over again. So now I want to talk a little bit about this very mysterious aspect of how subjective it is of of how we perceive time. I think we've all had a very intense uh, experience of that during COVID lockdown, where many reported that they were feeling like time had disintegrated for them. And to me, it felt that way because all of our routines came to a halt. And so our relation to time really shifted. It's also interesting to notice in more extreme cases, like when we get the news of somebody close to us that has died, something very interesting happens with our perception of time. I don't know if you've noticed But the way that I tried to explain it was that perhaps we can imagine that our life is like a film strip that is just flowing, and the events that organize our life are are like the frames of the film strip. And when we get like shocking news, it is as if it falls in between those frames. It falls into another dimension. 
And we feel as if we're floating in a different space. I found it fascinating that the Greeks actually had a term for this. They called it kairos. They also had the term for chronos, and chronos is what we are familiar with. That's measuring time according to minutes and hours and weeks and calendars, schedules. That's chronos. But kairos is when we have these experiences that are like watershed experiences that have a before and an after. And I read you um, the way that Krista Tippett uh, describes Cairo's time. She says, It is a moment that disrupts everything that came before, everything you thought you knew. Cairo's moments are these pivot points when the questions you are asking, holding, living, utterly change. Life is suddenly, unalterably defined, separated into a before and an after. I think it's wonderful to have a word for that. It's powerful to be able to name our experience and our practice. We know that in meditation, when we are observing the mind, if we are able to come up with precisely what's happening in the mind in the moment, there's a shift. It's like we wake up. So there are many ways that, uh, and many perspectives that we can uh, talk about of why is it that we perceive time differently. But I'll share one that I think is important that Berkman mentions in his book. And that has a lot to do with uh, our age. And he says, Our brains encode the passage of time based on how much information we process in a given time interval. So, for example, in childhood, when we have endless new experiences... A year, if you remember when you were a child, seems like an eternity. But as we get older, life becomes more habitual if we are not careful. We live in the same place, we have the same job, we have the same relationships, and the sense of novelty diminishes. So then we have this sense that the years are just kind of running like water through our fingers. It is as if the texture of our life loses its relief, and the days and the weeks and the months filled with, unfortunately, stale routines blur like in a shapeless mass. The psychologist William James writes, and then it seems that the years grow hollow and they collapse. I found this when I read it, like the image, it's shocking and sad. We don't want that. And, And this practice gives us a fantastic tool, which is sati, mindfulness, which allows us to stay awake for every moment. And if we practice now before we get really ill and 
are unable to have exciting experiences, then we will be prepared and we will be able to delight in little details like how the sun is suddenly shimmering on a little piece of foil paper. But we have to, we have to really take it seriously now. So if I sum up just to a couple of ideas of what Berkman presents in his book, I would say that he says, accept that you can't do everything. Very important. And then once you clarified what are the things that are important, important to you, I mean, really take the time and clarify, this is what is important to me. Then you go and do them wholeheartedly. And all the other things that you cannot do because you recognize your limits, you put aside and you're free of guilt. So you can see that when you look at this this way, it has a lot to do with renunciation that we talk about a lot in the Dharma. Renunciation because you are accepting from the get-go that you can't do it all. And you let go of the things that you know you can't get to. And Berkman says it is about transforming what he calls the fear of missing out on something to the joy of missing out on something. That interesting, the joy of missing out on something. And this to me connects very nicely with the way that we define renunciation in the Dharma. You give up a lesser joy for a greater joy. So, how would this letting go give us this greater happiness in this context? We can see that when we clarify what's important for us, it's an expression. It's, it's an expression of our values. This, in turn, gives you, is a result of clarity, which will give you confidence and joy. We'll also experience a sense of lightness, of lightness, of not always carrying this big load of, you know, we think we have to get all these things down, and it weighs us down. So the last um, idea that I want to bring up with you is, is, is something that Berkman calls deep time. But for us, the equivalent would be mindful time. So... It's really the ability of just be, to be as present as possible. But what I found interesting is that as he writes about deep time, he describes in a very candid way how for himself, somebody who's done a lot of study and also meditation around this topic of, the, of time, how it is difficult to, be, to, to remain present. And he writes... the more you try to be here now to point at what's happening in this moment and really see it, 
the more it seems like you aren't here now, or alternatively, that you are, but that the experience has been drained of all its flavor. So then he goes on to describe how he went on this Arctic trip, and he prepared uh, a lot to what was going to be a peak experience, and that was to witness the northern lights. And he comments, I was determined to relish the exhibition, which the next morning the locals would describe as particularly impressive. But the more I tried, the less I seemed to be able to do so. Much to his dismay, he found himself thinking, oh, the northern lights look a little bit like one of those screensavers. (laughs) That's kind of... That's kind of sad, isn't it? To go to almost at the end of the world and then think about your screensaver. So just briefly, wherein lies this? Why is it that in moments like this, in peak experiences, we're not able to be there fully and we feel as if we have a glass in between the experience and ourselves? There's much that we could say, but we don't have much time left. So, of course, for us in the Dharma, the ethics part is essential to, to be able to be calm and to be present. But I think in this situation, what's going on in the, the, in what Berkman describes, it's more like right effort from the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, this ability to be able to monitor our mind constantly, to recognize this is an unskillful mind state, I want to let go of it, I want to weaken it, or, ah, this is, this is a, a wholesome one, I want to cultivate it. It takes years to fine-tune what we call this effortless effort. And this is something that, little by little, will allow us to remain more and more fully present. So I want to finish with um, a haiku by the 18th century Japanese poet Isa. It says, On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. On a branch, floating down river, a cricket singing. This image, for me, summarizes all what we have been talking about. The sense of impermanence, the river moving, changing, that we are the river, that we are the change. It also captures the vulnerability of our human fate, the precariousness of our life, of the cricket balancing on top of the branch. And yet, if we are able to embrace this reality wisely, we too will be able to sing like the cricket. Thank you very much.
And so let me just close our eyes for a moment and let the words sink in. Thank you. So I understand that um, at this point you go out and uh, we can sit outside and uh, talk a little bit. But if any of you maybe has to go and like to ask a, a short question or has a comment, please go ahead and do it now before we move. You feel complete? Good. Okay. Thank you so much. <clears throat>